Chapter 11, Part 3 of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of 1875-76. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter 11, Part 3. Better fortune awaited the next effort, and on the morning of the 20th, the ships fought slowly across Lady Franklin Strait. Cape Baird and Cape Lieber were passed in comparatively open water. Then the ice became less and less, and as midnight approached, we were astonished to find ourselves nearly sixty miles on the homeward journey, and still steaming full speed. The scene we passed through just at this time was one not easily forgotten. Under the cold yellow light of northern afterglow, Kennedy Channel lay open as far as we could see, a sheet of mirror-like water in that absolute calm peculiar to ice-locked seas. There was some low mist at the other side of the channel, probably floating over pack. Through it, we could distinguish the islands named after Franklin and Crozier, and between them rose Cape Constitution, the bold headland from which Morton had looked upon Kane's open polar sea. As we stood on deck, attempting to preserve some record of the tender tint of sea and sky in watercolor, a last fragment of heavy pack floated by, and the only dovekey we had seen for many a day swam beside it. Open water, as far as the eye can reach, really means nothing more than that there are no ice fields within three or four miles, and yet, on that limited fact alone, voyagers have more than once reported that they might have sailed to the pole or near it. The open sea off Cape Constitution was a mere pool. Before morning, both ships were arrested in dense pack, and forced to retreat for shelter to a narrow inlet with steep shelving sides. We were just moored to some pieces of grounded ice, and were congratulating ourselves on the security of our refuge, when a fragment of drifting flow caught against the alert, and pushed her on shore under a steep ice-foot at the very top of a high tide. As the water fell, her bows were left high and dry on the beach, so that a man might have crept under the front of her keel, and she fell over so much on her side that a total capsize down the sloping beach seemed not impossible. But when the tide rose again, she righted, and the whole crew, straining vigorously on the capstan, dragged her off from her perilous position. From this point southward to the entrance of Smith Sound, the return of the expedition was one monotonous struggle with the ice. Day after day, the ships pushed onward between the floes and the shore in whatever openings the changing tide made for them, sheltering behind every projection of the coast. In the far north there are very few, if any, true icebergs, but opposite the Humboldt Glacier we again encounter them, and often found a refuge from the pack 
amongst groups grounded near shore. Our progress southward was a race against rapidly approaching winter. Snow fell in large quantities and lay in thick paste on the water in cracks and pools. One by one, the headlands passed on our northward voyage were rounded, and day by day new ice grew thicker and our stock of fuel dwindled. There, several attempts were made to force a way past Cape Hawks, and when we did succeed, the bay beyond was found full of new ice, so thick that the whole power of our engines could not push through. It cracked here and there before the ships, but soon brought both to a standstill, and the order was given to put out the fires. The bay in which we thus found ourselves arrested was afterwards called after Professor Allman. It is an indent in the western coastline of the Cane Sea, immediately north of Hayes Sound. It is five miles wide, and at its head we could see a large glacier pouring in two streams round a snow-covered hill, and fronting the bay in a line of icy cliff. Snow lay deep on the mountains on either side, and it still snowed constantly. Decks and rigging were covered. A more wintry prospect could hardly be conceived. It was already beginning to grow dark in the evenings, and lamps and candles were again in use between decks. But for a certain disappointment in being checked when we had made up our minds to return, few on board our ships were unwilling to face another winter. Here, two hundred miles further south, it would be a very different affair from the last. Release from the ice next season could be looked forward to as a certainty, and even with a stock of coal lessened by the exigencies of a second winter, it would still be possible to escape from Smith Sound. If the ships could be got into shelter near the deserted Eskimo hunting grounds of Norman Lockyer Island, we should probably get plenty of game. Almost all our invalids were again in good health, and when spring came, the smooth flows would make the exploration of Hay Sound a pleasure trip. Moreover, if a second winter was unavoidable, there was another reason, a somewhat ignoble one, perhaps, why it would not be unwelcome. The advance of pay, liberally granted by the Admiralty before sailing, was not yet defrayed, and if we reached England this year, almost all the men would still be in debt to the crown, and sailors naturally prefer to land with a little money in their pockets. We were not fated, however, to spend another season in the ice. Some motion in the flows occurred on the 6th of September, and the opportunity was not let slip. The remains of the coal were once more drawn upon to light the engine fires, and the ships were soon pushing through the thin flow towards some water spaces near Norman Lockyer Island. The discovery led the way, for the shape of her bow enabled her to glide up on the ice till her weight broke down through it, and she thus advanced with a sort of pitching movement. Next day, the whole south was dark with storm clouds. If the wind came, 
it would soon clear the channel. It did come, but only as a gentle breeze. Its work was done before it reached us, and the gateway of Smith Sound lay open. The swell, coming from the south, told of a long stretch of open water. Our leader might, at last, come down from his post in the crow's nest. His almost sleepless vigil was over, for his two ships were once more safe in the north water. As it grew dark on the night of the ninth of September, Cape Isabella, at the western side of the entrance of Smith Sound, came into view. We knew that this was one of the points where letters might perhaps have been deposited for us. And the ships were hove to under the wild, steep rocks, while a boat was called away to search the depot. It soon left the ship and disappeared in the dusk. Fearing disappointment, we tried to persuade ourselves that there was really very little chance of letters being left at this particular spot. After a while, the boat reappeared. We could scarcely dare to hope, but in a few minutes, bundles of letters and newspapers were being eagerly distributed. The gallant little Pandora had been working hard for us, and Captain Ellen Young had thoroughly carried out the kindly service volunteered by him. With news but four months old on board, and only Melville Bay and the Atlantic between us and home, we felt that the expedition was practically concluded. Melville Bay had been so rarely visited at this late season of the year that hardly anything was known about it. To our surprise, we found it altogether free from pack ice, a rolling sea of comparatively warm water, very green in color, and swarming with microscopic animal life. Our coal at last came to an end, and for fourteen days strong headwinds baffled us. Day after day, the two ships beat about in fog and storm, through fleets of icebergs that would have made us very uncomfortable if we had not learned implicit confidence in our officers of the watches. Finally, the weather moderated, and we reached Disco on the 25th of September. Every Eskimo that came on board looked like an old friend. We were most kindly received by all the inhabitants, from the Danish inspector, who shared his small stock of coal with us, to the young urchins that kept us supplied with delicious fresh fish. Poor people! They were more in need of help from us than we were from them. The season had been a bad one, and scurvy was very prevalent, both at Disco and Agdesmind. Even the little children looked miserably withered and weak, and we were glad to have some little remains of our mess stock to serve out amongst them. At Disco, we bade goodbye to our two trusty dog-drivers, Hans and Fred, and on the 2nd of October, the expedition set sail for England. The voyage home was one succession of gales. The flying Dutchman himself could hardly have experienced worse weather. The ships soon lost sight of each other, and to complicate matters, the alert's rudder, 
which had never been strong since its last crush in the ice, gave way completely, and left her to make for the nearest port as best she could. On the 27th of October she reached Valencia, and two days afterwards her concert, the Discovery, anchored in Bentry Bay. End of Chapter 11, Part 3 End of Shores of the Polar Sea A Narrative of the Arctic Expedition of 1875-76 by Edward Lawton Moss